This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. In the year leading up to the 2020 election, we're counting down the biggest political scandals in American history. This is number 49, the Chappaquiddick Incident. During the run-up to the 2016 presidential election, then-candidate Donald Trump famously boasted that he could shoot someone dead in the middle of Fifth Avenue and still not lose any voters. At the time, this statement was largely viewed as a typical example of Trump's braggadocious headline-hunting style. Nobody really thought his political career could survive such a shocking event. Or could it? In 1969, a similar question was put to the test by Ted Kennedy, a prominent U.S. senator with presidential ambitions. On July 18, 1969, Kennedy was involved in an incident that led to a young woman's death. This incident was so shocking that it became singularly tied to the small island where it took place. It is known by a single word. Chappaquiddick. Welcome to Political Scandals, a ParCast original. I'm Richard. And I'm Kate. You can find all episodes of Political Scandals and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Political Scandals for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Political Scandals in the search bar. At ParCast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. Perhaps there is no decade that shaped American history more than the 1960s. And perhaps there is no family that shaped the 1960s more than the Kennedys. Led by patriarch Joseph Sr., the blue-blooded Kennedys were as close as you could get to American royalty. From their compound in Hyannisport, Massachusetts, it seemed like the Kennedys churned out one political superstar after another. But by 1969, the Kennedys were in crisis. 
After John F. Kennedy was assassinated in 1963, his brother Robert met a similar fate during his own presidential campaign in 1968. With Robert's death, the last of Joseph Sr.'s progeny with great political ambitions was Edward Ted Kennedy. Elected to the U.S. Senate in 1962 at only 30 years old, Ted was expected to carry on the family legacy. And as the summer of 1969 dawned, many Americans expected the now 37-year-old senator to announce a presidential campaign at any moment. The summer of 1969 was a microcosm of the momentous change that had occurred throughout the decade. From the withdrawal of American troops from Vietnam, to the Stonewall riots, to the Manson murders, it seemed like there was a major news headline every day. In late July of 69, the entire country was focused on the impending Apollo 11 moon mission, which officially commenced on July 16th. Ignition sequence starts. Six, five, four, three. Along with an two, estimated 25 million Americans, Ted Kennedy was surely glued to his TV, watching Neil Armstrong, Buzz Aldrin, and Michael Collins blast off into space. After all, the Apollo 11 mission was the culmination of his brother John's legacy. Eight years earlier, on May 25, 1961, John F. Kennedy had announced to the world that America would put a man on the moon before the decade was done. Though he didn't live to see it happen, JFK's bold promise was finally being fulfilled. As he watched the Apollo 11 rocket ascend into the heavens, Ted Kennedy may have also been thinking about his other, likewise assassinated brother, Robert. Perhaps Ted Kennedy was feeling nostalgic for simpler times. On July 18, 1969, two days after the Apollo 11 mission blasted off, he hosted a small party on Chappaquiddick Island. The purpose of the party was officially to thank a group of women known as the Boiler Room Girls, who had earned their nickname by tirelessly working on the nitty-gritty details of Robert Kennedy's presidential campaign. With the one-year anniversary of Robert's death just passed, the party was a great way to celebrate his memory and reunite the people who had believed in his cause the most. Maybe Ted Kennedy also wanted to ingratiate himself with this group of talented women. After all, many people assumed he'd be taking a crack at the presidency in the 72 election. If he had the boiler room girls in his corner, he would have a great shot at the big job. And there was no better way to get on their good side than by throwing a party in their honor. Even before the dark events that were on the horizon, the party at Chappaquiddick had a scandalous edge. The six women in attendance were all under 30 and single, while the six men were all older and married, save for one of them. Furthermore, the men's wives were not invited to the festivities. It would be easy to jump to the conclusion that the party was anything but an innocent gathering. However, pundits and journalists have generally agreed that there wasn't anything untoward going on. The women were all staying the night at the Katama Shores Motor Inn at nearby Edgartown, while the men were staying at the Shiretown Inn a little ways from the women's lodging. 
None of the guests seemed to be put off by the rumors that could spring from such a party. Everyone was ready to have a good time. The rented cottage was stocked with one and a half gallons of vodka, four-fifths of scotch, two bottles of rum, and a few cases of beer. By all accounts, this amount of alcohol was a bit overzealous. In the aftermath of the day's events, all the attendees have vowed that nobody had more than two or three drinks. But the relative temperance didn't mean nobody had a good time. Steaks were grilled, drinks were poured, and there was some dancing. Around 11.15 p.m., Kennedy decided he was done for the night. There was a sailing regatta the next day, and he wanted to be well-rested. Not wanting to disturb the festivities, Kennedy quietly grabbed his keys from his chauffeur, John B. Crimmins, and headed out the door. But he didn't leave the party alone. According to Kennedy, 28-year-old Mary Jo Kopechny was feeling ill. Since Kennedy was already heading back to Edgartown, she asked him to give her a lift. He obliged. Nobody thought much about their early departure. The party was in full swing. They would see Kennedy and Kopechny in the morning. Perhaps they should have been more concerned. Around 7 a.m. the next morning, the ferry between Edgartown and Chappaquiddick opened for business. The day's first passengers across the 150-yard channel were science teacher Robert Samuel and 15-year-old Joseph Capavella. The two of them had come to Chappaquiddick for some early morning fishing. After having no luck along the coast, they decided to cast their lines off a bridge above Polka Pond. As Samuel stood over the water, he noticed the dark outline of a car resting at the bottom of the approximately six-foot-deep pond. He and Capavella immediately ran to a cottage 400 feet away and called the police. Edgartown Police Chief Dominic James Arena arrived 10 to 15 minutes later. Wasting no time, he jumped into the water and swam towards the car. But he couldn't reach it. The current coming from the ocean was too strong. Arena returned to his cruiser and radioed the dispatcher to send the fire department's rescue diver, John Farrar, at once. As Arena waited for Farrar to arrive, he had one of his officers run the submerged car's plate, which was just visible from outside the pond, L78-207. Farrar arrived a few minutes later, around 8.45 a.m., in full scuba gear. But Arena was too preoccupied with a new development to pay much attention to what was happening underwater. The plates had come back. The car belonged to Ted Kennedy. Still clutching one end of Farrar's safety line, Arena could barely process the implication of what he had just heard. Nobody had reported an accident the night before. If Ted Kennedy had been in the car when it crashed, he was probably still inside. But Kennedy wasn't in the car. There was only the body of a solitary woman. She was located in the upended car's back seat, her face pressed up towards the footwell. In Farrar's opinion, this painted a grim picture. He believed that the woman hadn't died upon impact or been knocked unconscious. No, she had survived the crash and did everything she could 
to stay alive. But the rescuers had come too late. By the time Farrar pulled her from the wreckage, the woman was long dead. While Farrar searched the river for additional bodies, a tow truck arrived to pull the car from the pond. Police Chief Arena was relieved to hear that the driver had just seen Ted Kennedy near the Chappaquiddick ferry landing. What had happened was horrible, but at least he didn't have a dead Kennedy on his hands. As Arena tried to convince dispatch to send someone to talk to Kennedy, his deputy sheriff, Christopher Huck Look Jr., pulled him aside. Look told Arena that he had seen a car similar to Kennedy's the night before. If it was indeed the same car, then Look might be the only eyewitness to the previous night's events. But Arena pushed him aside. He didn't have time for his deputy at the moment. He needed to get in touch with Ted Kennedy. By 9.30 a.m., word had finally reached the senator about the wrecked car. According to eyewitness accounts, he wasn't particularly agitated. When he stepped off the ferry from Edgartown about a half hour earlier, he had even seemed downright cheerful. But when Chief Arena's messenger gave him the news, Kennedy didn't waste any time heading straight for the police station to give a statement. Once he arrived, the dispatcher radioed Arena at the scene. As Arena hopped into a colleague's car to head for Edgartown, Deputy Look pulled him aside for a second time. He reiterated that he saw Kennedy's car the night before, sometime around 12.45 a.m. But once again, Arena brushed him off. He was more focused on his interview with a U.S. senator. But if he had known the controversy he was about to step into, Arena might have paid more attention. Coming up, the events from the night of July 18, 1969, come to light. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. And now, back to the story. Around 11.15 p.m. on the night of July 18, 1969, 37-year-old Senator Ted Kennedy left a party on Chappaquiddick Island with 28-year-old Mary Jo Kopechny. The next morning, Kennedy's overturned car was found at the bottom of a tidal pool. Although the senator wasn't in the vehicle, his companion's dead body was. Around 9.30 the next morning, Kennedy was informed that his car had been discovered with a dead woman inside. He headed straight for the Edgartown Police Department 
and by 10 a.m., he was sitting down with police chief Dominic James Arena to make a statement. As Arena would later recall, the power dynamic was not the usual one of police officer and person of interest. For starters, when Arena arrived at the station, he was still in the wet clothes he had worn when he dived into the pond. In contrast, Kennedy was put together, wearing clean, dry clothes. He projected the image of unimpeachable American integrity. The situation was rendered even stranger by the fact that when the police chief arrived, Kennedy was using Arena's office to make some phone calls. And it was Kennedy, not Arena, who had backup. He was accompanied by former U.S. attorney Paul Markham, one of the guests from the party. Until that point, Arena was operating under the assumption that the woman he found in the car had been the only passenger. So when Kennedy immediately admitted that he was the one driving the car, Arena was placed on the back foot. What shocked Arena so much was how uninjured Kennedy looked. He would have never guessed the senator had been in a massive car crash less than 12 hours before. Kennedy had no visible injuries, no cuts or bruises. He wasn't wincing from lingering pain, but Kennedy insisted that he had been driving the car. After conferring with the lawyer privately, Kennedy provided Arena with a statement dictated to and handwritten by Markham. It read, On July 18, 1969, at approximately 11.15 p.m. in Chappaquiddick, I was driving my car on Main Street on my way to get the ferry back to Edgartown. I was unfamiliar with the road and turned right onto Dyke Road instead of bearing hard left on Main Street. After proceeding for approximately one-half mile on Dyke Road, I descended a hill and came upon a narrow bridge. The car went off the side of the bridge. There was one passenger with me, one Miss Mary Jo Kopechny. The car turned over and sank into the water and landed with the roof resting on the bottom. I attempted to open the door and window of the car, but have no recollection of how I got out of the car. I came to the surface and then repeatedly dove down to the car in an attempt to see if the passenger was still in the car. I was unsuccessful in the attempt. I was exhausted and in a state of shock. I recall walking back to where my friends were eating. There was a car parked in the front of the cottage and I climbed into the back seat. I think I asked for someone to bring me to Edgartown. I remember walking around for a period and then going back to my hotel room. When I fully realized what had happened this morning, I immediately contacted the police. Of course, that last sentence wasn't true. Kennedy had only gone to the authorities after he was informed that his car had been found. And while Arena had been extremely accommodating up to that point, he had a few questions for the senator. But Kennedy wasn't talking. Since he had just potentially confessed to a crime, he didn't want to say any more until he had contacted the family lawyer, Burke Marshall. Additionally, Kennedy asked Arena to hold off on releasing the statement until Marshall was looped in. The chief was willing to honor Kennedy's request. Once the statement went public, 
Kennedy would be inundated with questions. It was natural for him to want his lawyer by his side. However, Arena wasn't the only law enforcement officer circling the case. Because the car accident had involved a fatality, the Registry of Motor Vehicles was legally required to look into the matter. And the two inspectors who showed up at the Edgartown police station wanted to talk to Kennedy right away. Before diving into their questions, the inspectors read Kennedy his Miranda rights. You have the right to remain silent. You have the right to an attorney. If you cannot afford an attorney, one will be provided for you. In case the questioning turns serious, the investigators had to cover all their legal bases. However, that also meant Kennedy didn't have to say anything without his lawyer present. And until he could talk to Burke Marshall, he was going to keep his mouth shut. Since Kennedy wasn't being charged with a crime, yet, he was free to leave the station and head for the family compound in nearby Hyannisport. In fact, Chief Arena even arranged for a local resident to fly him there on a private plane. After a short 10-minute flight, Senator Kennedy was safely ensconced in the family compound, surrounded by his family and closest advisors. It was time for damage control. Unbeknownst to the folks back at the Edgartown police station, family lawyer Burke Marshall was already waiting for Kennedy when he arrived at Hyannisport. The first order of business was to keep the story consistent. That meant Kennedy had to keep quiet, and nobody from the party could say anything about what happened the night before. Even though Kennedy's statement hadn't been released yet, there was no taking it back. And if any of the guests contradicted what he had told Arena, it could be very bad. Next, Marshall had the family doctor examine Kennedy right away. Since he had told Arena that he left the party on Chappaquiddick around 11.15 p.m., that meant around 10 hours had passed before he admitted his role in the accident to the police. To account for this massive time gap, it would be very helpful if Kennedy was diagnosed with some sort of head injury. Sure enough, the doctor told Kennedy that he had a minor concussion. Now, this isn't to say the diagnosis wasn't accurate, but judging from Police Chief Arena's observations, Kennedy seemed very much with it. Even if he did have a concussion, it strains credulity to believe that he wasn't coherent enough to report the accident as soon as it happened, or at least before 10 hours had elapsed. As for the accident itself, Kennedy's advisors worked to make it as difficult to investigate as possible. At the scene of the accident, the associate medical examiner had ruled Mary Jo Kopechny's cause of death as drowning. Because he concluded there was no foul play involved, an autopsy would only be required if the district attorney called for it. And that was very good for Kennedy. We don't know if pressure from Kennedy's camp had anything to do with it, but no autopsy was ever performed on Mary Jo Kopechny's body. Before the decision could be reversed, the body was embalmed and flown to a funeral home in her native Pennsylvania. Additionally, Kennedy's fixers arranged to have his car taken from the site 
and placed in storage as quickly as possible. By keeping it out of the public eye, there was less chance of attracting additional scrutiny. However, a wrench was thrown into their carefully laid plans by someone they thought was in their corner. Around 3 p.m. that afternoon on July 19th, Police Chief Arena released Kennedy's statement. Although he had promised Kennedy he wouldn't release the statement until Burke Marshall contacted him, too much time had gone by to keep waiting any longer. The story had broken locally, and reporters were practically knocking down Arena's door. With complete radio silence coming from Kennedy's camp, Arena felt like he had no choice but to read the statement verbatim to the reporters who were packing into the hallway outside his office twice. He was in the middle of his third recitation when a phone call came in for him. It was Paul Markham, the former U.S. attorney who had accompanied Kennedy to the police station. He still had no idea that Arena had released the statement to the press. According to the book, Chappaquiddick, Power, Privilege, and the Ted Kennedy Cover-Up by Leo Damore, the conversation went something like this. When Arena got on the phone, Markham asked if he could hold off on releasing the statement for a little longer. Lying through his teeth, Markham claimed they hadn't been able to get a hold of Burke Marshall yet. While Arena was sympathetic, there was nothing he could do. He had already released the statement. In response, Markham said only two words, Oh, Jesus. Realizing how displeased Kennedy would be, Arena tried to explain himself. He pointed out that he hadn't heard from them for several hours. With reporters clamoring for more information, he had little choice in the matter. He tried to reassure Markham, emphasizing that he was treating the case as a basic motor vehicle investigation. Since Mary Jo Kopechny's death had been ruled an accidental drowning, there wasn't a criminal component. But the assurances fell on deaf ears. Markham hung up on him. With the cat out of the bag, reporters sought out a response from Kennedy. But all they got was deafening silence. The embattled senator was not talking. However, now that his statement was released, the press was free to turn to other sources, namely Mary Jo Kopechny's parents. By 4 p.m. on the 19th, barely an hour after Arena released the statement, Kopechny's father had given the reporters what they wanted. Although Kennedy had called Kopechny's parents earlier that day to offer his condolences, Mr. Kopechny revealed that he had said very little. According to him, all the senator had said was, Mary Jo was in an accident, an automobile accident. She was returning to take a ferry back to the mainland when the accident occurred. For two grieving parents, this was precious little information. Kennedy hadn't even said he was the one driving the car. When pressed about what he did know, Mr. Kopechny revealed that he was aware that his daughter and a few other women from Robert Kennedy's campaign had gone to Martha's Vineyard for the weekend. He wasn't sure what the occasion was, but he knew they had gone to a party with Ted Kennedy. Although Mr. Kopechny didn't realize it, he had just dropped a bombshell. 
Until that point, Kennedy had never said anything about a party. If Mary Jo Kopechny had died from an honest accident, that was one thing. But a party meant alcohol, and alcohol raised the specter of drunk driving. All of a sudden, the story became much more complex. None of Kennedy's advisors had been anticipating a serious criminal inquiry. Until that point, the team had been focused on preserving Kennedy's political career. Now, they had to preserve his freedom. Coming up, Ted Kennedy and his team scramble to stay ahead of the Chappaquiddick story. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Now until May 12th, get up to 30% off personalized jewelry, style, decor, and so many other items mom will love. And if you want her to know you put a ton of thought into her present, use Gift Mode. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting so you can easily find well-crafted, original, and affordable pieces from small shops. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about mom, and Gift Mode instantly gives you curated ideas based on hundreds of personas. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. Now back to the story. Around 4 p.m. on the afternoon of July 19, 1969, Mary Jo Kopechny's father dropped a bombshell about his 28-year-old daughter's death. It had happened after a party hosted by Ted Kennedy. Once Mr. Kopechny's comments were released, the Kennedy spin machine was firing on all cylinders. The senator's advisors now had to deal with two damaging implications. First, that Mary Jo Kopechny was in the car with Kennedy because they were having an illicit relationship. And second, that Kopechny's death might have involved drunk driving. Throughout the rest of the day, even more advisors and lawyers flocked to the Kennedy family compound at Hyannisport. This was a code red. They needed all hands on deck. Luckily, another Kennedy-centric event was keeping the press from digging too deeply. The Apollo 11 astronauts would be landing on the moon the following day. It was as if John F. Kennedy was running interference for his little brother from the grave. But even the moon landing couldn't keep the media occupied for long. Within 24 hours, the Chappaquiddick story was gracing headlines across the nation. By the morning of July 20th, reporters were swarming over Chappaquiddick. There wasn't much to see. The island was only five miles long and three miles wide, with a single paved road running through it. And that's what was so damning for Kennedy. One of the main points in Kennedy's police statement was that he was unfamiliar with the roads. 
He claimed he had mistakenly turned onto the road leading to the bridge from which his car so fatefully plunged. On the surface, this explanation seemed to have some merit. Up until that fateful drive, Kennedy had been chauffeured around the island. It was certainly plausible that he had been distracted by work or just hadn't paid much attention to his surroundings. However, the reality of Chappaquiddick's layout made the argument rather suspect. Since there was only one main road, he wouldn't need any extensive knowledge of the island's layout in order to get from the cottage to the ferry dock. Also, it would have been very difficult to accidentally turn onto the road leading to the bridge. The part of the road in question curved sharply to the left, and there was a large light-reflecting arrow sign to indicate this. For Kennedy to end up where he did, he had to make a decisive right-hand turn onto the bridge road. And one more thing. The bridge road was unpaved and extremely rutted. Even if Kennedy had mistakenly gone down it, he would have immediately realized that he was going the wrong way. But there was more than speculation that Kennedy wasn't on the road by accident. There was an eyewitness. Sometime on July 20th, 1969, several reporters spoke to police deputy Christopher Look. The day before, Chief Arena hadn't been that interested in what Look was trying to tell him about the accident. The reporters, however, were very eager to hear him out. The night of the crash, Look had been providing security for a dance at the Edgartown Yacht Club. After the festivities ended at 12.30 a.m., Look got into his car and boarded the ferry back to his house on Chappaquiddick. At 12.45 a.m., Look was driving down the island's main road when he saw the headlights of a sedan coming towards him. Not wanting to take any chances that late at night, Look slowed down as the sedan crossed paths with his truck. Because he was going so slowly, the deputy was able to get a decent look at who was in the car. A man was driving with a woman in the passenger seat. It looked like there was something in the back, either some clothing or another person. The moment the sedan passed his truck, it turned onto a narrow dead-end track that the locals called Cemetery Road. But before it went very far, the car stopped and started to back up. Thinking the driver must be lost, Deputy Look, still wearing his police uniform, jumped out of his truck and started walking towards the sedan. Perhaps spooked by having a cop coming towards him, the car's driver turned back onto the main thoroughfare and sped onto another dirt road, one that led to a narrow wooden bridge. As Look watched the car disappear, he got a glimpse of its license plate. He could see that it started and ended with the number seven and had the letter L. At the time, he didn't think much of the encounter, but the next morning, as he saw that same sedan turned upside down in Polka Pond, Look had a sickening realization. He had been one of the last people to see Mary Jo Kopechny alive. Look's story posed a major problem for Kennedy. First, it cast doubt on his claim that he had gotten lost and mistakenly turned onto the bridge road. If he really had gotten turned around, 
then who better to give him directions than the police officer who was within 10 yards of his car? Second, the time frame look provided contradicted Kennedy's. He had insisted that he and Kopechny left the party around 11.15 p.m., an hour and a half before Look ran into them and headed straight for the ferry. There is very little chance Look got the time wrong. He would have been aware what time the yacht club dance ended, and he would have seen the time on his car's clock. So the obvious question was... What were Kennedy and Kopechny doing between the time they left the party and the time of the crash? Naturally, the conclusion people jumped to was that they were looking for an out-of-the-way place to get some alone time. It certainly wouldn't look good for a cop to catch a senator and his dead brother's speechwriter in a late-night rendezvous. So with the uninformed deputy look closing in on Kennedy's car, his hasty getaway down the bridge road would certainly make sense. And with alcohol and adrenaline coursing through his body, it wouldn't be surprising if he was going too fast over the bridge. With questions swirling around what really happened the night of the accident, it seemed like the senator was in for a protracted legal battle. But he was a Kennedy and America's most famous family still had quite a few friends in Massachusetts, namely Edgartown Police Chief Dominic James Arena. The morning of Monday, July 21st, Arena announced that Kennedy would be charged with the crime of leaving the scene of an accident without negligence involved. According to the district's special prosecutor, Kennedy had been driving with extreme caution just before the accident. The facts flew in the face of this. The registry inspectors deduced that the car had flown 23 feet forward and 5 feet to the side after it left the bridge. John Farrar, the diver who recovered Mary Jo Kopechny's body, remarked, The car must have been going at a pretty good clip to land almost in the middle of the channel. But in this instance, the facts didn't matter. Not for a Kennedy and especially not in his home state of Massachusetts. Despite news outlets calling for a more thorough investigation, the case moved forward with Arena's original charges. Although leaving the scene of an accident was still a criminal charge, it paled in comparison to something more severe, like manslaughter. This was the best he was going to get. So on Friday, July 25th, Kennedy pled guilty. The punishment barely amounted to a slap on the wrist. The presiding judge sentenced Kennedy to a two-month suspended jail sentence, which meant he would never see the inside of a cell. Five days later, he was back at work in the United States Senate, making laws for the American people. Laws, it seemed, that did not apply to him. But the controversy refused to dissipate no matter how much he wanted it to. Outside of Massachusetts, public sentiment was firmly against Kennedy. Luckily, someone inside the senator's state decided to take action. The day he returned to the Senate, Kennedy found out the Massachusetts district attorney was opening a formal inquest into the Chappaquiddick case. Once again, Kennedy's legal team had their work cut out for them. The inquest's results were nothing short of damning. 
The presiding judge found that Kennedy and Kopechny did not intend to return to Edgartown at that time, that Kennedy did not intend to drive to the ferry slip, and his turn onto the bridge road was intentional. There is probable cause to believe that Edward M. Kennedy operated his motor vehicle negligently, and that such operation appears to have contributed to the death of Mary Jo Kopechny. By the letter of the law, the judge's findings were enough for a warrant for Kennedy's arrest. However, there was nothing forcing the judge to issue one. Giving no explanation, the judge neglected to pursue the case any further. In fact, he retired from the bench the day after filing his report. He never spoke publicly about Chappaquiddick again. If Kennedy's team was involved here, they covered their tracks well. There's no conclusive proof they influenced the judge. But what the team did once the inquest was over gives us a clue as to how eager they were to erase this embarrassing incident. Shortly after the inquest, the car from the accident was destroyed in a compactor. The bloodstained clothing Mary Jo Kopechny was wearing that fateful night was burned. Ted Kennedy's escape from punishment was an affront to the phrase, justice is blind. Although it may have been difficult to prove that there was a criminal component to Mary Jo Kopechny's death, there was clearly enough to warrant a more thorough investigation. And yet, Ted Kennedy emerged from Chappaquiddick unscathed, free to live his life as though nothing had happened. His political ambitions were somewhat damaged. Knowing that the incident would inevitably be brought up in a presidential contest, he decided to stay out of the 1972 election. Although he briefly challenged Democratic incumbent Jimmy Carter in the 1980 primaries, Ted Kennedy never rose to the heights that were expected of him. However, that isn't to say he went quietly into the night. While the national perception of Ted Kennedy had irrevocably plummeted, he remained hugely popular in Massachusetts. In the 1970 senatorial election, 15 months after Chappaquiddick, Kennedy won with a whopping 62.2% of the vote. His seat in the Senate would never be seriously challenged. Ted Kennedy remained a U.S. Senator until his death on August 25th, 2009, just over 40 years after the Chappaquiddick incident. Known as the liberal lion of the Senate, he left a lasting legacy, spearheading bipartisan legislation on education, immigration, and health care reform. And while he solemnly claimed that the events of July 18, 1969, haunted him every day of his life, one has to wonder, was it because he felt guilt over Mary Jo Kopechny's death? Or because that fateful car accident prevented him from becoming president? Thanks for listening to Political Scandals. We'll be back next week with scandal number 48, Richard Johnson, whose 1836 bid for the American vice presidency was hampered by his common law marriage to one of his father's slaves. 
You can find all episodes of Political Scandals and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Political Scandals on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Political Scandals in the search bar. We'll see you next time. Political Scandals was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Russell Nash, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, Travis Clark, and Trent Williamson. This episode of Political Scandals was written by Alex Benedon, with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher, and stars Richard Rossner and Kate Leonard. Listener.